Welcome to the Dividend Cafe weekly market commentary focused on dividends in your portfolio and dividends in your understanding of economic life. Hello and welcome to today's COVID and Markets. This is David Bonson, Chief Investment Officer of the Bonson Group, and our COVID and Markets podcast is brought to you by the Dividend Cafe. I um, have, you know, the normal things to go through today, markets, uh, health data, uh, oil, mortgage, housing, policy, market technicals, and a little more than normal on the Fed. So we'll, we'll get into it. Um, market was down about 100 points today. It basically was between flat and down 100 pretty much all day. So one of the less volatile days we've had in the market in quite some time. Oil was up on the day, remains around $34 a barrel on WTI. Uh, muni bonds, I believe, are looking at about 10 consecutive days of positive trading now. Corporates are off a tad, as best I can tell. Not much, but between both junk and, and uh, IGs, we're off a little. Syndicated loans seem to be up a little bit, which uh, is only noteworthy because equity markets were down a tad, and generally they've been pretty positively correlated. Uh, but again, it's Thursday, and so that means weekly initial jobless claims came, and the number came in at 2.4 million, which is around the number that consensus was expecting. It brings the total number to 38 million of initial jobless claims filed since the COVID pandemic began. Uh, and the economic estimate I got today is that 8 million of those have uh, are no longer collecting unemployment, meaning they've either found a new job or resecured their old job, which is interesting. 8 million out of 38 million effectively getting back into the workforce really before the economy is actually back up and running. So I assume a lot of those are probably in states where the uh, economy began reopening sooner than, than other places. Or some of them perhaps are people that went on uh, unemployment in the immediate aftermath of COVID, but then uh, CARES Act and, and uh, PPP money allowed their employer to bring them right back. So either way, our estimate is that there are still somewhere in the range of 30 million people, which is just a ghastly, incomprehensible number that we hope and pray will continue to go down and down dramatically as states continue reopening. Speaking of which, on the health data front, case growth was 1.5% yesterday, so still staying very low. Uh, the absolute number of cases, though, is staying stubbornly above 20,000 a day. And for my sneak peek into today's number, which isn't you know complete yet at recording time, it looks like it's above 20,000 again. But it really is uh, explained by that increased testing because it's coming with a continually collapsing positivity ratio, which is exactly what we want. Um, t testing today was yet again over 400,000. This was either the second or third biggest day we've ever had. 408,000 tests done, a positivity rate of right around 6%. Um, one thing I didn't know before some analysis very early this morning was that the UK had also seen its case growth increase when their testing increased uh, dramatically about a month ago. So their big surge higher in testing was a month before ours. We now have been enjoying uh, a much higher testing capacity over maybe the last couple of weeks. But UK, throughout the whole month of May, saw their deaths decline. And so even as cases may have been going a bit higher with increased testing, the, the 
mortalities were declining. And if uh, the U.S.'s situation is to go the same, big increase in testing, very uh, minimal positivity rate, or excuse me, really uh, encouraging positivity ratio drop, but coupled with a kind of maintenance level of case growth where that absolute number does not decline, um, and yet deaths do continue to decline, and all those things I just said were the case in the UK over the last four weeks, I think that'll end up being positively received here in the States. Um, I do think that the data around states reopening is vital towards educating us as to what is working and what is not to guide those ongoing safety decisions that policymakers, public officials are making, but also to provide the public confidence needed to resume their daily activities. And most of those daily activities, work and recreation, have really direct economic implications. When we look at the COVID case growth in the states that have reopened either three weeks ago or longer at some degree, had some marginal increase in their opening, uh, we see a very steady decline of new cases, not a surge, and yet we see a surge higher in new testing being done. So again, I put two charts at covidmarkets.com today. One of those states that began reopening uh, the last week of April, another of those that began reopening in very early May. And what you see in both cases is a declining amount of new cases and a dramatically increasing amount of testing, and that is in conjunction with them reopening, opposite of what many have feared. Um, I watched an absolutely fascinating presentation today from Dr. Michael Roizen, who's the founder and chief wellness officer of the very famous Cleveland Clinic, one of the most respected doctors in the country. The data supporting human behavior as a key ingredient in protection from COVID, things like hand washing and avoiding face touching and hair touching, uh, reheating of food, I did not know that one, um, isolation of those with symptoms, obviously. All of it was amazing. Um, but the regional differences in the spread of the disease, New York as a, held out against the experience that was had in Florida, California, Texas continues to be something not fully understood, even in the medical community. Um, and yet, one of the things that's abundantly clear are the comorbidity factors that have driven the fatality rate. Um, it's very, very clear. And the primary comorbidities that, that Dr. Roizen focused on were obesity, high blood pressure, diabetes, immune suppression, lung disease. And then also, of course, the central role that senior facilities, nursing homes, long-term care, had in the spread and then, you know, subsequent mortality uh, with the disease. That data is readily available and I believe will serve a very important purpose in how policymakers think about this going forward. Uh, vaccine news filled our TV time again today. Um, this time there was a report early this morning that uh, the, the BARDA, which is the Biomedical Advanced Research Development Authority, has granted um, a billion dollars in vaccine funding uh, to AstraZeneca, which is going to be sort of the production um, and distribution arm of the Oxford University project. So should the kind of joint venture between the Jenner Institute and Oxford, um, and you'll recall that they are the ones who have spoken most confidently about believing that they're going to be shovel ready by September of this year, 
um, Glaxo is committed to being able to produce, a, excuse me, not Glaxo, AstraZeneca. Glaxo is a different uh, product altogether. 400 million minimum in treatments, but up to a billion doses of the vaccine, again, upon approval. They're in phase three clinical trial right now, 30,000 participants. But it, it is necessary for me to say that no trial data from even prior trials has been uh, released. So that is so, makes the such a large government investment all the more noteworthy, I would think. From a market technical standpoint, the underlying theme that most technical analysts are focused on right now, uh, as it pertains to seeing another significant move down in stocks, is what happens with the so-called weak links in the market, the most volatile and vulnerable areas that were at the hub of market carnage a couple months ago. And we're talking about oil, copper, the bank stocks, and then, of course, credit spreads, which is something I've talked about quite a bit over the last couple months. So we're monitoring all of these, but I think it's very interesting to see either out-and-out out strength in these areas or at least stabilization, again, across the board from oil to copper to banks to the um, credit spread conditions in the bond market. Uh, speaking of credit spreads, there's a chart at COVID Markets just showing both in the high-yield side and investment-grade side. Whenever I say IG, it's investment-grade, a high-yield equivalent to junk bonds, how those spreads have tightened and held up here uh, in the last month or two. Um, well, obviously not two months, really more in the last uh, four to five weeks. Um, on the public policy front, Senator Marco Rubio in Florida indicated early today that they he claims they have the votes in the Senate level to extend the time beyond two months that businesses have to spend the borrowed money from the PPP program and, and still maintain their eligibility for loan forgiveness. So I think that's a potential... Uh, significant move. If they do have those votes congressionally and they're able to do it as a standalone bill, they can rather quickly give some businesses the assurance that they can still get loan forgiveness from PPP, even if they're not prepared to fully have all that money spent within two months because of the nature and dynamic of their own business. Um, I'm, I'm counting this under the public policy uh, silo, but the Treasury Department yesterday sold 20-year Treasury bonds, bonds that will mature, you know, debt from the U.S. government maturing in 20 years. It's the first time they've sold that maturity since 1986. Now, why does it matter? I suspect um, that they're testing a little bit to see what the appetite is for longer duration bonds. They only sold $20 billion worth, and so that's obviously not a significant amount in the grand scheme of things. But they were able to sell it uh, all to the private sector quite quickly at 1.2%. So um, we'll continue watching this. I would really hope that they are indeed headed towards issuance of some 50-year or even 100-year maturities. Uh, two factors there. One is for the sake of the government and therefore for the financial system at large. It would take a huge tail risk off the table. People constantly say, what happens if interest rates goes up? The government's running this really, really, really short-term term structure of their own debt profile. And all of a sudden, interest rates skyrocket higher. It makes debt service costs explode and boost deficits even further. And I'm of the mindset that's not likely to happen. It is a big part of why the Fed holds rates down, and I believe will maintain the ability to hold those shorter rates down. But it's a tail risk. And so they address that issue 
with the virtually free money never before seen in capital markets where one can extend debt out such a long period of time and not see interest costs skyrocket in any meaningful way. That's the sort of societal and macroeconomic reason that I'd like to see it happen. Selfishly, I believe it would provide an extremely low-cost deflation hedge that could be purchased on behalf of clients with a carry benefit. It obviously would be cash flow generative, where you know a long-duration U.S. government asset is, in my mind, one of the better substantial deflation hedges we can offer, we can access, and so it would give us a, a good way to purchase that. Uh, natural gas as a uh, percentage of electricity generation in our country is leading the way. And I talked yesterday about how 32% of natural gas production uh, comes from oil well production. So with the rig count collapsing with oil wells, that then in turn will end up pushing natural gas production lower which will in turn impact electricity. And to the extent there's no real appetite in our country to see coal picked up as a means of generating electricity, um, there is, in this sense, a sort of societal-wide consideration from the domino effect of these oil rigs to uh, what it means for coal and electricity. Uh, natural gas has really become that preferred mechanism, and yet uh, if a third of natural gas production is off, that has a huge impact. In housing, the FHFA announced uh, in recent days that borrowers and forbearance may elect a deferral option where they can you know, resume making normal payments but then have the monies owed from the missed payments added to the back end of their loan. So these payments will just get made whenever the loan is paid off or, or the house is sold or the loan is refinanced, et cetera. Um, this deferred option becomes another option there that in addition to other things that were already on the table, such as the borrower negotiating with the servicer for a repayment plan, a reinstatement, a custom modification, et cetera. But at least a deferral is now specific on the table. Well, the bottom line is that this does give increased clarity for how mortgage borrowers who skip payments can be made whole, but it also gives clarity to investors who hold these pools of mortgages that include these particular mortgages. Um, a lot of these are credit risk transfers, which were Fannie and Freddie loans at the time they were written but that were since sold off into the private sector may not maintain conforming criteria now, and in fact are not specifically backed by Fannie and Freddie now. Um, but I think this is broadly helpful to the CRT space. That's why I bring it up. Finally, in Fed news, I will use this uh, moment to just reiterate one of the most needed economic reminders of this era. I harp on it in Dividend Cafe all the time. The Fed is increasing their balance sheet at rapid speed. That is, they're buying bonds with money that does not exist. It's called quantitative easing. It's a monetary policy tool for accommodation. The Fed did this heavily, 2009 to 2014, three different rounds called QE1, QE2, QE3. And then they resumed the task in mass just a couple months ago in March. So expanding their balance sheet with these buying of bonds most certainly holds down yields, but in and of itself, it does not create new credit. 
Individuals and companies borrow when they have a need and a demand for more credit to drive their own production and or consumption. Banks lend more to meet that demand. Post-financial crisis, banks have had stricter liquidity requirements, stricter capital requirements, and that's a good thing. No one wants inadequately capitalized banks. But my point is this. The Fed can create excess reserves at the banks out of thin air. It cannot create demand for credit, which takes those reserves off the shelves of the bank and into the real economy. The delta between these two was very crystal clear after the financial crisis. I put a chart up at COVID and market you have to see. I harp on this issue so that we will understand what the real risk is in this policy, distorting asset prices, what the real risk is not, producing runaway inflation. I harp on it to demonstrate their real policy objective, why they're doing it, which is to hold down bond yields and support liquidity in financial markets. But I also want to illustrate what their policy tools cannot be expected to do, what I don't think they're after, and that is actual credit demand in the economy. Um, there's another chart at COVID Markets, just uh, getting into, it basically shows the currency exchange rate uh, with China yuan and U.S. dollar, and you just see how much the uh, Chinese have weakened their currency in the last couple months, how the dollars rallied against it. I think it sort of is an encapsulation of the strained relationship right now between China and U.S., and uh, that remains a, a, a short-term catalyst, I think, to market volatility should because of the political popularity right now of anyone job voting with China, I don't think markets can respond much if it's just a, a tweet here or there or a couple you know policy uh, proposals that aren't going to go anywhere. But if you get some substantive legislation where it escalates uh, and China retaliates, then I do believe that that could become a catalyst to market volatility. Okay. Look forward to coming back to you in a weekly Dividend Cafe tomorrow, Friday. In the meantime, reach out with any questions you have. A lot to chew on this week in COVID and markets. Please share far, share wide. And in the meantime, you be well, be safe, and be free. The Bonson Group is a group of investment professionals registered with Hightower Securities, LLC, member FINRA and SIPC, and with Hightower Advisors, LLC, a registered investment advisor with the SEC. Securities are offered through Hightower Securities, LLC. Advisory services are offered through Hightower Advisors, LLC. This is not an offer to buy or sell securities. No investment process is free risk. There is no guarantee that the investment process or investment opportunities referenced herein will be profitable. Past performance is not indicative of current or future performance and is not a guarantee. The investment opportunities referenced herein may not be suitable for all investors. All data and information referenced herein are from sources believed to be reliable. Any opinions, news, research, analyses, prices, or other information contained in this research is provided as general market commentary and does not constitute investment advice. The Bonser Group and Hightower shall not in any way be liable for claims and make no expressed or implied representations or warranties as to the accuracy or completeness of the data and other information, or for statements or errors contained in or omissions from the obtained data and information referenced herein. The data and information are provided as of the date referenced. Such data and information are subject to change without notice. This document was created for informational purposes only. The opinions expressed are solely those of the Bonson Group and do not represent those of Hightower Advisors LLC or any of its affiliates. Hightower Advisors do not provide tax or legal advice. This material was not intended or written to be used or presented to any entity as tax advice or tax information. 
Tax laws vary based on the client's individual circumstances and can change at any time without notice. Clients are urged to consult their tax or legal advisor for any related questions.